1 Samuel 23. A short time ago in our study, we saw that God had rejected Saul, and he made an interesting statement that he was going to replace Saul with another man, David, but a man after his own heart. And so as we get to the text today, we're going to look at a contrast between David and Saul. What is it that made these two men actually different? Um, Both of them claim to know the Lord. In fact, we see Saul doing things that we would expect a good faithful Jew to do. Um, But what is it that actually made David and Saul different? Um, We find as we go into the book of 2 Samuel, which will probably come sometime later down, um, we'll get a really good picture of what it meant for David to be a man after God's own heart. But we've seen some glimpses of that. And as we go through the text today, chapter 23, um, and then into chapter 24, I'm going to try to make some comparisons and contrasts between these two individuals to sort of see what it is that made them different, what it is that made um, Saul and David, both who claimed to know the Lord, um, a man after God's own heart in one case, and a man who was rejected by God in or on the other hand. So let's go ahead and look at this. We're in chapter 23. We're starting in verse um, 6. I'm going to read just verses 6 and 8 to start with. Chapter 23, starting in verse 6, it says, Now it came about, when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Kalia, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. That's uh, basically a thing he wears on the chest. And it was used to sort of listen to God or to summon God. When it was told Saul that David had come to Kalia, or Kyla, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Kela to besiege David and his men. So the first thing that I'm struck by in this passage as I look at, uh, as I look at Saul here is that he actually thought that God was on his side. Now the reason I find that kind of striking is that he had been pursuing David, trying to kill him. That's nothing new. I think there are 14 or 15 attempts that Saul makes on David's life. David is in Kela after having rescued them from the city of the Philistines, so he's done a good thing, and he's done it really on behalf of Israel. Remember, he had been Saul's right-hand man. So when David is down there in this small city after rescuing them from the Philistines, Saul learns about it. You see what Saul says? It says, when it was told Saul that David had come to Kila, he said, God has delivered him into my hand. God has delivered him into my hand. I think that's remarkable because of some other things that had happened in Saul's life. That's a statement. It's interesting because Paul is thinking that God has done him a favor, has helped him with his enemy David. But when we think about some of the things that happened in Saul's life, it makes me wonder how in the world he could think that God was still on his side. Do you remember some of the things that happened with him? God had rejected him. If you turn to chapter 13, verse 13. Saul had just disobeyed the Lord and made the sacrifices that Samuel was supposed to make. 
And so God rejected him. It says in verse 13 of chapter 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So the Lord had rejected Saul. Saul obviously knew that because it had been told to him by his prophet Samuel. But also the Lord had stopped talking to him. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 37. Chapter 14, verse 37. Saul went to inquire of the Lord and asked, Shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? Or into the hand of Israel? But he, meaning God, did not answer him on that day. So the Lord had become silent. Look at chapter 18, verse uh, 12. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, look at... uh, Chapter 18, verse 12, because we find a third thing there. The Holy Spirit had departed from Saul. Chapter 18, verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, David, but had departed from Saul. If you jump back to chapter 16, verse 14, we read this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord had terrorized him. So what you have are at least three things here. The Lord had stopped talking to David, or I'm sorry, to Saul. The Lord had rejected him through the prophet, so he was told, I'm rejecting you. You're no longer my king. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit, something that Saul had experienced, something that you and I typically don't, you know, Experience. I don't know that we walk around, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but we don't necessarily see the Holy Spirit um, prophesying through us or causing us to speak in tongues or other things. Most of us here don't haven't experienced that, but Saul had. So he knew what it was like to have the Holy Spirit come upon him and to see the Holy Spirit work in that supernatural, um, powerful way. But that had been replaced by what we find is a tormenting spirit. Quite the opposite. So it's not just that the Holy Spirit had been removed from him, But something had been given in place, a spirit that would torment him. And the purpose of that was chastisement, probably trying to convince Saul to turn his heart back to the Lord. So we see these three things that had happened in Saul's life, and yet in spite of that, when he sees David down at Kila, a city that had walled gates and had one way in, he thinks, God's on my side, God has delivered him to me. So here's this man who, there was every evidence that God had rejected him, And he somehow still thinks God's on his side. That's like the epitome of being, can I say, um, ignorant? Dumb? You know, when you really absolutely convince that God is on your side, but all the evidence is that no, God is not on your side. And so that's Saul. Let's look at David in contrast, though. We read in verses uh, 9 through 14 of chapter 23. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. That's what he would use to, um, sort of a way of hearing from God, if you will. There were different ways that it happened. Dreams is one. 
um, using the ephod of the priest is another, using the urim, or the uim, um, different ways to hear from the Lord. So David calls for the ephod, which is what the priest wore. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Kela to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kela surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant, and the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kela surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David said to his men, About six hundred arose and departed from Kela, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kela, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So what do we find here? I think there's a contrast here. Um, when David learned that Saul was coming to pursue him, what's the first thing that he did in the text here? David does something here in the text that he does throughout the book, which is he immediately seeks the counsel of the Lord. He immediately goes to the Lord and says, Hey, What's going to happen here? Give me some direction. And even when the Lord answers him, he goes back a second time and asks, just to make sure. So when David learned that Saul was on his way, he did something that he always did. He did that with the priest of Nobs in chapter 22. He did it, in fact, if you go back up in verse 23 to verse 2, before David even attacked the city of Kela to defend it, it says here he sought the Lord. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and deliver Kilah. I counted up a total of um, eight times in First and Second Samuel that David consults the Lord. In fact, that almost every time David has a decision to make of any significance, he consults the Lord. In fact, there's only one time, and it's coming up in a passage down the line here, where God is not mentioned at all in two chapters. And what's interesting is it's a time that David makes a decision to do something, and he doesn't consult the Lord. And there's some consequences because of that. Just some things that happen. It wasn't sin. But in almost every instance, at least eight times, David consults the Lord. So the difference that we have here is that Saul just assumes or presumes that the Lord is on his side. With David, what we find is David has every reason to believe the Lord is on his side, but always checked with the Lord first. Always sought the Lord's counsel. There's a difference there in who who these people were. Saul just, God's on my side. In fact, there's only, I think, once or twice that Saul um, inquires of the Lord, and both times the Lord is quiet. So we find this contrast between David and Saul, where Saul presumes that the Lord is on his side, while David um, refuses to assume that the Lord is on his side. Think about David for a second here. This is the man who had wiped out the powerful Philistine army and delivered the city of Kela just moments before. That should convince him God was on his side, right? Um, David was that fearless youth that went and charged at the giant Goliath, totally wiped out Goliath with a sling and a stone, then sent the whole entire Philistine army on the run. That should convince David that God was on his side, right? David was probably one of Israel's greatest military heroes. We see that throughout the text here where almost everything he does, it, we're told constantly that he prospered at it. That ought to convince him that God was on his side. So why would he inquire of the Lord then? Why would he ask? Shouldn't he just assume 
I don't think that was in David's heart. I think David, just he was a man who had one of these hearts who was always interested in knowing what the Lord thought, knowing what the Lord wanted for him. In most instances, he refused to charge ahead without asking the Lord for his help. Where Saul, on the other hand, sitting there boastfully, saying, look at what God has done for me. He's handed my enemy over to me. And yet all the evidence should have indicated to Saul, God is not happy with you. You are not in God's good graces at this moment. And so we see this stark contrast between these two individuals. One who had every reason to think and understand, God's not happy with me. And the other, a man who had all the evidence that God was happy and was pleased. And look at how they both react. One presumes God's on my side and has no reason to believe that. The other one doesn't want to presume, doesn't want to automatically assume, but wants to seek God out. That says something about what's going on in the heart, doesn't it? I think about... I'll I'll use an example today from from our, our churches, if you will. Obviously, there's a whole slew of different denominations. And clearly, some of those denominations I would not even put into the camp of Christianity, even though they would wear the Christian label, because clearly they've rejected much of the Word, rejected Christ. Um, and then you have denominations that probably fall more in line. So you would think, and I'll, I'll try to throw these out there, you know, you would think Grace Brethren and, and most Baptist churches and, and what we do here. We would say that that's fairly mainline. We, we love the Lord. We understand that salvation comes purely by salvation, or through, um, through faith in Christ. Um, we take the Word of God and we, we understand that it's inspired. We understand that it's perfect and true and we can trust it. But then you have churches... Um, you might say some Episcopal churches, for instance, that reject much of this. Okay, Now, that doesn't mean people in the Episcopal church can't be saved. But my point is that there are denominations that clearly are outside Christendom. Well, here's something rather interesting. Many of those churches claim God is on their side. Much like we would. Okay, But... We know otherwise, because when you completely reject God and His Word, and you reject Jesus Christ, when you have churches that claim that there are many ways to salvation, not just Jesus, you know, I think about an individual, you guys know the name Rob Bell? Does that ring a bell? Rob Bell was a, he's a, he's a famous, if you will, um, mega church pastor, Mars Hill, that not too long ago went off the rails, and wrote a book called Love Wins, where he basically taught that Hell doesn't exist. There's no such real thing as hell. Um, he's a proponent of gay marriage now and some other things. And when you, it's what, what's interesting is when you listen to him talk, you get this sense of arrogance and pride that everybody else is wrong and God is on his side. This reminds me of Saul here. We find that within Christian circles. And even within what I'll call solid evangelical churches, we find a mix of Christians. Sometimes we just think that God's on our side, even though we might be rejecting certain things, or we might be disobeying or not doing the things we should. And on the other side, we find those that are humble and wonder and always want to seek out God. And so what we find here is we look at David and Saul. Again, we get this stark contrast. One of the things that made David a man after God's own heart was the fact that even though he had all every reason to believe that he had God's favor... He didn't take it for granted. He didn't just presume and assume. Instead, he always sought the Lord, at least most of the time. When he chose not to is when he got himself in trouble. Saul, on the other hand, just went about life thinking, I'm the king. 
I'm the king, the Lord loves me, he's mine, he's delivered my enemies in my hand, even though God had told him outright that he had rejected him. Let's move on. If you look at chapter 23, down about verse 15 or so, a second way in which Saul and David differed was in the disposition of their hearts. So not only did you have this arrogance in Saul's mind and this humility in David's mind, how they thought about their relationship with God, we have also just exactly what was going on in their heart. Um, so by disposition of the heart, I'm referring to the character of the inner person. What drives somebody to do something? So after fleeing from uh, Kalia, David made his way into the wilderness of Ziph. That's verses 15 through 18. We'll read those briefly here. Chapter 23, verse 15 through 18. It says, Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life, while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you, and Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. That was the last time David and Jonathan saw each other. So David basically goes back on the run again. But then this group of individuals called Ziphites decided they were going to turn David over. So if you look at verses um, 19 through 23, we see what they did. He says, The Ziphites came up to Saul of Ge- or at Gebeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish on the hills of um, Hekelah? which is on the south of Jeshimon. Then David, o king, or, uh, now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do, and our part will be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure, and investigate and see this place where his haunt is, that's where David's staying, and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. So look and learn all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty and I will go with you and if he is in the land I will search him among the thousands of Judah. Then they rose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan in the Arabah in the south of Jeshmon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Moan. And then Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Moan. So what happens here? So the Ziphites come and basically say, hey, we know where David is. We'd like to tell you so you can go find him. But it's where we get our first glimpse as to the disposition of Paul's, or I'm sorry, of Saul's heart. And it's basically this. He was a man who did whatever his heart wanted. He did whatever his heart wanted. You notice how the Ziphites actually approach him? It's an interesting phrase. He said, they say, now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do. They knew exactly how to appeal to Saul. They went in and said, hey, we're going to help you do whatever you want to do in your heart, Saul. They knew something about him. They knew that he could appeal to his base instinct. So he was a man who just did whatever he wanted. Remember, he didn't consult the Lord on any of this. Quite the opposite of David. So they saw an opportunity to get on his good side. They said, hey, we can help you accomplish whatever's in your heart, Saul. Saul also had a me complex. You notice this phrase where he says to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Now there's some interesting things that actually happen there in the language. The root word that they actually use there for compassion um, indicates removing some type of difficulty from somebody. It's kind of a weird, there's not an easy way to translate that, I guess, is the best way to, to say this. So Saul is basically saying, I have this tremendous burden. It's David. And 
May the Lord have compassion on you for lifting that burden off of me. Now think about that for a moment. Who created the problem in the first place? Saul was out pursuing David, trying to murder an innocent man. He sees David as his enemy. He thinks David is out to get him. This was all of his own doing. But you see, in Saul's world, it was all about him. And so when these Ziphites came to him and said, hey, we can help you out, he basically was like, oh, thank the Lord. You people are are lifting this heavy burden off of me. I'm just, oh, thank you. It's all about him. He's got this me complex. So the burden was of his own making. Notice here that he's asking the Lord to bless them for doing this. They were going to hand over an innocent man. This guy's got no clue about how the Lord really operates. You know, it's kind of that way oftentimes. We attribute certain things to God because of our own internal thoughts and desires. It's kind of strange, you know. Um, And so in this case... Saul really thought, because it was all about him and this fact that, oh, somebody's finally helping take care of my enemy, that the Lord would bless them for doing a wicked, wicked thing. So he attributes to the Lord something that the Lord certainly would not do. But he's so stuck in his own little bubble, it's all about me and how I'm being blessed through this process right now, that he can't see that. We also see something else in Saul here in that he was a man who pursued God's or pursued his own agenda over the Lord's agenda. That goes with the me first complex. Look at verses 24 through 29. They arose and they went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan and the Arab of the south of Jezmon when Saul and his men went to seek him, is what it says. Went to seek him. What's interesting about this is Saul's primary role as the king of Israel was to defend them. God had said when he anointed Saul that Saul would rise up and save them from their enemies, the Philistines. That was his primary purpose. 1 Samuel 9.16 says this, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, that's Saul, this is the Lord speaking to Samuel, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. But you know what happened here? Saul was so busy pursuing David that he left Israel undefended. That's something that gets missed in this, in this story. Is that we find here, if you go back up into verse 27 or so, a messenger had to come to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. Because Saul was so busy pursuing his own agenda, going after this single man David and his small little army, that he left Israel undefended. And so messengers had to go out and find Saul and say, Hey, what about the Philistines? They're attacking us. So Saul was so consumed with his own agenda that he forgot about God's agenda. That kind of goes with this whole Me Too complex as well. I remember a guy that I worked for a number of years ago was a part of a small, small church. And he worked as the, um, he was our financial guy. So he did the finances for their church. And he was telling me how he hated going to their elder meetings because nothing ever got done. And he had come back from one specific elder meeting and he was frustrated because about 20 years earlier, this woman in the church had died and she was fairly wealthy and she left the church all this money and the only thing she asked was that they use it to replace the carpeting in the church because the carpeting had been old at that point. 
Well, here it was 20 years later, and the church still had not put down carpeting in the church. And the reason was the elders couldn't agree on a color. And so he said, elder board meeting after elder board meeting, we argue about the color of the carpeting. And so here this woman's gracious gift to the church sits there wasted, doesn't get used. And he said, and we still have the carpeting that was old back then that is even worse today, and we can't replace it because everybody's got their own agenda. It's got to be a certain color. That was Saul. It's all about him, knee complex, abandoning God's agenda for his own agenda and leaving Israel undefended. But let's look at David. If you look at what happened with David in chapter 24, David refused to raise a hand against Saul because he thought it would be an offense against God. Look at the first Seven verses. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Egedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, all of Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he had said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now, there's some things in this text that you might not have caught, but there's some deliberate work here by the author to repeat some things. You notice here, David is in a cave. He's hiding in the back of the cave. And just purely by coincidence, Saul has to go to the bathroom. So he goes into the exact same cave that David's hiding in. But he doesn't know it. So he goes up to relieve himself, and while he's he's squatting to go to the bathroom, yeah, as he's as he's bent over going potty, David sneaks up because his men inside the cave see this. You won't believe who's in here. Saul is in the cave. This is our chance. Now remember. When, when Saul learned that David was in, this, in the other city, Saul said, the Lord has delivered him into my hand. And immediately he's going to set out, he's thinking, God has done this. So the same sort of thing happens here where the, David's soldiers say, the Lord has delivered him into our hand. The author's done that deliberately because David's response is going to be very different than Saul's. Remember, David doesn't just assume, ha ha, God's on my side, this is my chance to kill him, like Saul did. And we see that in a second. So anyway, so David sneaks up to Saul, and he kind of tucks behind a rock, because Saul is probably leaning on a rock, right? And David reaches out, and he cuts off the bottom of Saul's robe. Now, I don't know how that works, because if somebody snuck up and started cutting the bottom of my pants off, I would... But somehow, David... Yes, exactly. But somehow, David is able to snip off a piece of the robe. Now, what's interesting, the reason that's important is because the bottom of the robe is where the, like, the insignias went, the family insignias. And that's an insult to remove that. That's sort of, that's sort of like the family, family lineage, if you will. And so what David does, he snips off, probably, to be real frank, he 
deliberately probably went to that part to shame Saul. That's almost like saying you've been cut off as a king. Now that was true. So that's what David does. And he goes and he just snips that off. He doesn't kill David, or he doesn't kill Saul. He just snips off the bottom and then scurries back in. Now the men, think about this, their lives were in danger too because Saul was trying to kill these men. So the men aren't probably happy at this point. David, what, what are you, you cut off his robe? What is this, a practical joke? Kill him! But David persuades the men not to. But did you notice what happens here with David? It says that he felt sorry and remorseful. It came about, verse 5, afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. He said unto his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David felt bad for simply cutting off the bottom of his robe. Because again, that was a shameful thing. And so what we find with David here is that he was more interested in God's agenda than his own. God had made him king. And even though here he is sitting there, David could have taken his life and protected his life and the lives of all the 600 men that he's traveling with. But David didn't want to reach out. He figured if God wants to take out Saul, God can take out Saul. But as long as Saul is alive, Saul is king. And he even refers to him here as my Lord. This is the man that's trying to kill him. It tells us a little bit about what was going on in David's heart. While Saul was, was sort of me-centered and pursuing his own agenda... David on, the end, or David, on the other hand, is thinking about the Lord, not about his own agenda. David respected Saul because God had given him his position. And even though David could have taken his life, chose not to. David refused to listen to the wisdom of the world. While these Ziphites had come to Saul and said, Hey, we can give you whatever's in your heart. We can turn David over so you can do whatever you want. And Saul listened to them. David, when his men say the same thing, the Lord has delivered him into your hand, let's go get him. David rejects their wisdom because he's more interested in God's wisdom and what God would have him do. If you look at verses 11 through 15... I'm going to actually jump in. Actually, let's finish reading here. Verse 8, Now afterwards David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king. Notice how he refers to him there again? My lord the king. And when Saul looked at him, David bowed his face to the ground and prostrated himself. You see the humbleness of David here. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eyes, or my eye had pity on you, and said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Again, David is more interested in the Lord's agenda than his own. Quite the opposite of Saul. Now my father, see... Indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For I, for that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients said, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. 
After whom the king of Israel come out, or um, after whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea. The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. You see what David's doing there? David saw the Lord as his judge. Again, he wasn't interested in his own agenda, wasn't pursuing his own things. Saul is out there pursuing whatever is in his heart, the text says. David is out there thinking, no, I've got somebody else that I report to. I've got the Lord. The Lord has made you king, and as much as you want to destroy me, Saul, the Lord has made you king. I'm going to let the Lord be the judge. And so we see this very different disposition in his heart. We see who Saul was, and we see who David was. And everything in this passage oozes David having in his heart a desire to please the Lord, not to please himself, not to pursue his own agenda. Everything was about the Lord. We get a good picture now of what it meant for David to be a man after the Lord's own heart. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because even through this, David, you sense that David is not doing it begrudgingly either, because if he was, you might have heard him do something like, okay, look, Saul, you, man, you're just nasty. You know, but the Lord made you king. I guess I'll just have to deal with that. But why don't you just knock it off? Instead, he's calling him my Lord. He's bowing down and prostrating him before him. He's saying, may the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, what that means is, hey, Saul, if, if I'm the one that's wrong, then the Lord should deal with me. But if you're wrong, the Lord should deal with you. So he wasn't even spewing back, then the Lord's going to get you, man. He's going to really do you in. That is a very different perspective than what we saw with Saul with this arrogance and this confidence. We find this humble, gracious man in David who just, within his heart, is just oozing to please the Lord and to pursue the Lord's agenda. Even when his own life is... David could have ended it all right here. One potty break and Saul is dead. But instead, David now still puts himself in danger by letting Saul go, hoping that maybe Saul will say, wow, David could have killed me. Maybe he really isn't against me. We know that's not true because Saul doesn't get the message. So Saul's life differed by what he, or Saul and David's lives differed by what was in their hearts. We see that pretty clearly here. Saul was driven by whatever he wanted. He was focused on himself and he pursued his own agenda at the expense of Israel. David, in contrast, saw everything through the lens of how it affected God and his relationship with God. Very different. Let's look at a third way that Saul and David differed. And it's how they dealt with confrontation. This is a pretty big one. If you look at chapter 24, starting at verse 16. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt with me, or dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered you into my hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good and return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now that all sounds really good, doesn't it? 
I mean, it looks like Saul finally goes, wow, I I get it. He he weeps over this. He calls David his son. He says that David is more righteous than he is. He calls his own behavior wickedness. He seems to recognize God's judgment and David's mercy. He accepts the fact that God has made David king. He then begs David to be merciful to his family. Boy, Saul's a broken man here, isn't he? He's a changed man, isn't he? He finally figured it out. Until you realize that in chapter 26, he goes back after David again. This confession didn't last very long. In other words, it was all lip service. He said all the right things. He had a momentary lapse, if you will. Um, Felt good at the time. Oh, David, you're right. I'm just a wicked person. But give him a second to think about it, and he all goes back to his own ways. It's interesting, there's a proverb that says that a dog returns to its vomit and a fool to his folly. What that basically means is that people go back to just doing the same things they've always done. That's exactly who Saul was. Like I said, 14 or 15 times he goes to David. Sooner or later you figure he'd get it, but he doesn't. And so even here, where he pours out his heart in what looks like a real confession, we find out that it's not. In fact, um, he will pursue David until he dies. Saul never got it. But what about David? Well, we found out in chapter 24, verse 5, that David felt remorse for something as simple as cutting off the bottom of Saul's robe. He didn't need the people to confront him on his sin, did he? So we have this example where Saul needs to be confronted with his sin, gives lip service confession, but then simply goes back and keeps doing the same things. David, on the other hand, didn't even need to be confronted, but felt remorse. And in fact, confesses to his own men. We also see genuine remorse when David took the blame for the deaths of the priests of Nob. Remember when Saul went in and wiped out the city of the priests of Nob? David went there for help to get fed, desperate for food. They help him out. And then Saul goes and wipes them all out. Remember, with the one priest that survived, was this last week or the week before, when they came to David, what was David's response? It's on me. It's mine. David didn't sin in any of that, but yet he took the blame for it. Felt remorse. And then offered that priest protection, and that guy became David's priest for the next 40 years of his life. Took care of him. Brought him into his, his, his royal table, which is pretty good for a priest. If we jump to a future text... Remember what happened when David committed not just adultery with Bathsheba, but murder with her husband? David should have died because the law calls for death in that case. We won't go to the text, but at some point in the future we'll be studying it. The prophet Nathan had to go to David. You remember the story. And there was this, this old dude, he had some sheep and stuff, and a guy came in and wanted some stuff slaughtered, and he stole that guy's sheep. He was a rich man, and he took the poor man's stuff and slaughtered him, and David got all wigged out, and, well, that's just not right! And Nathan said, well, that's who you are, because you took this man's wife, one of your soldiers. You're the king! You got how many wives already? You took this guy's wife, committed adultery, and then you killed him. And David's confession is probably one of the greatest confessions we see in the scripture. We see it poured out in the Psalms. Um... But the Lord spared his life because David's confession was legitimate and genuine. 
And so the Lord doesn't execute the judgment from the law on him. And we see that in David's life, that David wasn't perfect. David sinned. But when he sinned and was confronted, it was genuine. In fact, there's another example where, where there's a, a woman, Abigail, that prevents David from actually sinning when he went to pursue his own agenda. And David's response to her is, you saved me today. That's the way David was. So what you have with Saul is he gives this lip service confession, says he does what he knows he's supposed to do, confess it, says all the right things, but then he goes back to the same behavior and just keeps doing it over and over and over again. David, on the other hand, the confessions we see with David in the text are always genuine, are always real. It appears that David learns from them, does something with them, doesn't return to the old sinful behavior afterwards. So again, we see that the difference, one of the differences between David and Saul was in how they handled confrontation and sin. So what do we, what do, we do with all this? Um, you know, as I was working through this, I kept thinking, you know, we see in this, I think, a reflection of the church. And to be real frank, I, I see a reflection of this in myself sometimes, too. On the one hand, the church is made up of Christians that are like Saul. It really is. Um, they assume simply because they have said the sinner's prayer that they're saved, or um, simply because they call themselves Christians, everything is okay. I'm a Christian, therefore all my behavior is naturally righteous and good and right. You know? Any of you know Christians that are that way? Just assume that? Sometimes we feel just that we go to church, we read or pray that everything is cool with Jesus. Um, but yet, never really considering that maybe, maybe really things aren't all that cool just because we go to church or we pray or we wear the Christian label or we do all the right things. A lot of Christians will do what's ever in their heart without giving any thought to how it impacts others around them or the Lord or their witness. Some Christians live life like it's really all about them. Lord's is this their personal genie in a bottle. Rub it enough and God will take care of you, right? We even see that in some, in some denominations and circles where God is ultimately literally just the guy to give you everything you want. You know? You should never have any struggles. You should never have to worry about money. God is just there. Rub the little bottle. You know, give your $1,000 gift and God will give you 5000 in return. We have whole denominations that are built around that concept. Some Christians live their life only thinking about their own agenda without giving much thought to God's agenda. Some Christians, when they're confronted with their sin, simply brush it off. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to do that. And they keep going back and doing the same thing over and over again. Have you ever known that? Have you ever had a a Christian friend that has had to confess to you or ask for your forgiveness on the same issue multiple times and they just keep doing the same thing over and over and over? How many of us are guilty of that times? So on the one hand, we have Christians that are much like Saul. On the other hand, we often have Christians that are much more like David, don't we? Rather than presume that God is simply okay with them because they go to church on Sunday or they pray or they wear the right labels or they said the sinner's prayer, that they're always seeking to find what does God really want? When they come to making decisions, they're always asking, what does God want me to do in this particular instance instead of just charging ahead? They generally have a heart to pursue God's agenda rather than their own. So when it comes to things like, hey, I got this opportunity to do this, instead of just saying, I'm going to take it because it's good for me to say, huh. Maybe I'll think about that for a little bit. Maybe I should pray about that. Yeah, it looks good, but you know what? Maybe God has something else in mind for me. 
these same Christians measure their actions by what pleases God, not by what is in their own heart or what they personally feel like doing. These same Christians, when they sin, offer heartfelt remorse and appreciation for those that confront them. They offer sincere confessions and genuine repentance. Now, with that said, I think I know that if I speak for my own, I think I fall into both of these camps. I think I do. I think most of us probably do. Do we sometimes act like act like Saul? You know, get a little bullheaded and just think it's all good. We sometimes act like David, right? So I find myself, I think, in probably bouncing back and forth between these two things. And I think it gives us a a good example of what pleases the Lord. If you remember when when God or when, when Samuel had to call out Saul because of his sin. The thing he told Saul was that God is not interested in your sacrifices. He's interested in a contrite heart. He's interested in in somebody who, like David, um, pursues the Lord, has the Lord's agenda on his mind, always views things through the lens of how that might affect God or affect his relationship with God. That's what the Lord wants. And so, obviously, in something like this, the reason we have these examples in the scripture is God wants us to be more like David than Saul. And that really ought to be the goal, right? Um, unfortunately, um, there are times where I'm more like Saul um, than David. Um, hopefully, as I grow and mature, <laughs> I'll be more like David than Saul. And I think that's really the charge for all of us. So I'll just go ahead and I'll wrap it up with that. But I think I had a good time with just working through this text because there's a lot of stuff going on. and a lot. Of, but I love just looking at the contrast between these two characters because clearly God is... Um, honored and glorified, but also takes pleasure in what he sees in David. And we see that throughout David's life. That David wasn't perfect, um, but the Lord took a lot of pleasure in him. Um, Where with Saul, what we see with him, is the Lord says, I regret. So I'm hoping that as I grow and mature, that the Lord would be much more pleased and find favor in me like he does David, then that he have any regrets like he did with Saul. And that's found by doing what David did, being a man after God's own heart. Amen?